This is Mitchell Belgian. And Shelley Menelcino from The Deciding Mind. And we're here at the Society for Neuroscience, and we've just heard some very interesting lectures on epigenetics and stress. And we're here with... Dr. Tracy Bell at the University of Pennsylvania. And Chris Morgan, also from the University of Pennsylvania. So the topic that you presented today was about transgenerational. Sure. So the idea of a, of a transgenerational phenotype or outcome is one in which you have a, a first generation that was perhaps, in our case, uh, we're looking at prenatal stress, so was exposed to prenatal stress in utero, became an adult, a normal adult, but had phenotype. And when it had its own offspring, those offspring still showed the phenotype, even though they were not themselves prenatally stressed. So... Broadly speaking, you're talking about grandparents, is that right? Yes. So the, you're talking about mice, right? We're working in mice. That the stress of that first generation, it really impacted two generations later. Right, that... so if, if your grandmother was stressed during her pregnancy for your father, that, then it passed it on effect to his son. So when grandmother was stressed, father shows a phenotype of stress sensitivity, and he's able to transmit that to his sons. And did you expect to see sons? What was this? We did not. Actually, these studies, um, funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, were actually geared toward, of course, increased vulnerability in women, because women present with higher levels of depression and anxiety. And so we originally started these studies thinking that we would see this increased predisposition to this factor in females. So no, we were quite surprised. The difference in this model, I think, from perhaps what we may have seen and what also was presented at the press conference is that the model we're using is very early pregnancy. And as was discussed, the timing of stress exposure is something that had never previously been examined. So it's not just any time in pregnancy produces the same endpoint, because, of course, development itself is occurring over the course of pregnancy. So what the, out, the outcomes will be will depend upon the type of stressor, how long the stress occurred, and when it occurred. And what we've found is that it's also dependent on the sex of the offspring. So many aspects of gestation are sex-dependent, not just of the embryo, but also of the placenta. So if mom is experiencing a change in stress, infection, or diet, she responds to that. That affects the development of the placenta. And we know in rodents, we can examine this because males and females have their own placenta, and they're all in the same uterus. So we have a controlled environment for the same exposure, yet we have very different outcomes. So all the way down to the level of both placenta as well as the amniotic fluid show differences. So it's likely that that would contribute to differences in who shows the phenotype. So when children are born from the stressed parent, the babies, male, female, they have different genetic expressions of fear, or is it something chemical that you're able to detect, or is it behavioral or so combination? In, so in our original work of the first generation, we characterized everything from the behavioral response to stress, the physiological response to stress, the biochemical response to stress, and the molecular response to stress. And so the, these male offspring showed differences across the board in all of those parameters. So we were able to show they had a different behavioral response, and then you can track it backwards and look at their physiological. We can look at the stress hormone levels and show that those were different. And then we can look within the brains. And this is really the beauty of using animal models because we can actually, A, control the environment, which you can't do in humans, and B, now look inside the brains of these animals and ask within specific regions we know control emotions and fear and cognition and look at, okay, here's the genes we would expect to see that are involved, and sure enough, those genes look different. 
And then we can take it even a step further. Well, how did stress, when the brain wasn't even around during development, end up affecting this programming? And that was sort of where we got interested in epigenetics. So when you mean the brain isn't even around, so you're, you're before the brain develops. The stress experience is the first seven days of pregnancy. The brain is not developing yet. So the placenta has, has massively wow. developed during that point. You're getting implantation. You start to get some differentiation, but there's no, the brain is not. So it's not a direct action of mom's stress on the developing, uh-huh. on the developing brain. So, but what it is, is that the mom has more stress hormones. And that's in the placenta. So that's something that actually wasn't addressed at the press conference that I wish somebody would have brought up, is that stress is not just about one hormone. It's not just that mom is stressed and you have cortisol varying levels or... of cortisol. Cortisol is um, a catabolic hormone, and every time you experience stress, no matter what, you know, you're racing down the freeway in traffic, it's kind of an acute stressor. You're going to respond. There's a cascade of events downstream because it is, it's an, you're an endocrine system. Your system is endocrine because it wants to maintain homeostasis. And so if it's an acute stressor, your body's going to sense that, that perturbation. It's going to, your brain responds to it, produces the hormone. And the reason it produces the hormones is because the hormone has actions downstream. It causes all of the, the liver to kick out more glucose because you may need that energy. Right? So there's all these functions. And so it's not likely that mom's stress effects on endpoints of offspring is just a simple glucocorticoid. It's likely to be many different facets of of her exposure and how those downstream events change. And more likely chronic stress versus... So that's why we use a chronic stress model, and our model is variable for that reason, in that if you do the same stressor repeatedly, animals will habituate, at least Mm -hmm. for the stress response part of it. There are other aspects of, of, um, say, restraining an animal or whatever other thing you might do repeatedly that if the animal's hot or thirsty etc. will respond to it. So it becomes a little bit more away from stress itself. So we use a variable model where every day it's a different perturbation of their environment so they don't habituate. Mm-hmm. And it's that factor that allows them to keep responding. So the time of day they encounter the stress, the type of stress it is, changes every day. I see. Because if it was the same stress, they might actually learn from that kind of stress? They do. They do, absolutely. They habituate. And you, mm-hmm. can, you can measure the hormone levels and see that they do habituate. So you've done these studies where you've done habituated uh, stress and there hasn't been a, an so effect on the... So we don't do that. So oh, those studies, there was um, a lot of classical literature that had done some pretty exaggerated, you know, three hours under bright light sorts of stressors. And you can clearly see, of course, a large... And they usually do this late in pregnancy. And that the, these large animals, when put into a tube under bright lights, the, str- the real stressor doesn't become the restraint. The restressor becomes the bright light heat, no water... So it's a, it's a different type of stressor. It's a more physiological sort of stressor. So we wanted to make it more akin to what a woman experiencing, you know, going through a divorce while she's pregnant or a move or death of a loved one, that sort of psychological stressor. I see. So I want to ask you two questions. One is what have you postulated as the evolutionary benefit from this or is it a deficit? And secondly, to clarify what happens in the generation after the male, when the male procreates with a female, what happens to that offspring? Um, I'll take the later half. Cause <laughs> take the, the evolutionary advantage of responding to the previous generation's experience, it's, it's an interesting idea, and it's been explored in, in, other, in other models, such as changes in diet that mom is eating or, or has available to her while, while she's pregnant. And and it does, I think, make some evolutionary sense that 
that a developing fetus is going to want as much information as possible such that when it's born uh, it's going to be prepared for the environment that it's going to face and it makes sense for the parents as well to try and provide that kind of information to prepare their offspring for the environment that they're going to face and I mean now obviously our environments change rapidly uh, and far faster than they used to I mean, um, year to year uh, we, we, we face different challenges as societies but I think that it's fair to say that in the past and, and in our uh, ancestors things didn't change quite as quickly as they do now and so that kind of um, that time scale of information was, was important and would probably give the offspring some advantage. So what he's specifically getting at is especially the maternal maternal diet. So evolution can't keep up with the fast-changing environment. So evolution has has driven our genes over a much longer period of time mm -hmm. to only be concerned with one thing, and that's famine, a lack of calories. What evolution has not caught up with mm -hmm. is our obesity epidemic. And so the brain is driven towards seeking out highly caloric or, or to to consume vast quantities of calorically dense foods. And the consequence of that, of course, is obesity. And while it has many different detrimental, right, there's metabolic syndrome and diabetes, cancer, et cetera, that are attributed to that, evolution can't keep up with that. But hopefully the epigenetics may be able to. And one consequence that Chris is referring to is if you think about our height, is that for up until the Industrial Revolution, when food was not very plentiful, we were much shorter in stature. And if you look at the the escalation, the very rapid escalation of oh, how we fast we grow as a culture. We're much taller now. Well, I know that because when I go to thrift stores trying to find the hat, they're always too small. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Actually, if you look, I live in an old house um, in Swarthmore and built um, back 60-some years ago. And even then, you can see that the ceilings are much shorter, the stairs, and people come. It's like, I can't even believe how small. And the house is... We're, we're, we're much taller. It's hard to believe Julius Caesar was four foot six. <laughs> so, so I'm going to make a leap here. I'm wondering if, um, so your, your mother's really stressed. You're, it's a boy. They, they are born and they're less masculine. Do you think? They're not less masculine. They're dismasculinized. Are they less aggressive? We have not measured aggression in these animals and aggression, um, is something that would be interesting to do, but certainly, why we're terming it dismasculinization is that it's a very specific aspect. If you're, if you're demasculinized, that means you have the absence of testes. You have, you've not, you don't have the ability to, to be masculine. If you're feminized, that's a whole different process. Mm -hmm. What we're really saying is that these animals are not receiving the whole cohort of programming, right? For any mammal, the male brain is distinctly different from the female brain. And that is an active organizational process that occurs predominantly over a perinatal window in concert with then the adolescent window they're now finding is also contributes to that. So these animals have testicles. They're def they can breed, obviously. They produce offspring. It's that the full concert of events that's required to produce that organizational, and that's not just the brain. There are other mm -hmm. aspects, and again, true for all mammals, that organizes the anogenital distance. So at around birth, that is programmed by testosterone, where males have testosterone, a surge, that the anogenital distance is longer. This is true for all, for all males. Mm -hmm. This is how when we wean animals, we can know if it's a male or female. You just look at that distance. Hmm. And so theirs is shorter. So as not just behaviorally as adults and physiologically, where they have lower testosterone, they have slightly smaller testes. So it's a dismasculinization in that it's not completely masculinized. So does that mean they have... 
less aggressive behavior? What, what is the behavior spectrum on a dismasculated male? Is it different? So we have not measured aggression, and in mice, as in humans, it's not just the level of testosterone driving. It's not an all-or-none feature, and it's not just more testosterone necessarily makes you. It is. It can contribute to aggression, but it's also on the background of your genes anyway as a human. So in mice, different strains have different levels of aggression. Even within a strain, you can have animals that will be more aggressive than others. So we've really not done an aggression because we're very interested in the stress pathways. So what you found in the grandsons, in terms of stress, is what that they were more stress sensitive. Is yes. that correct? Yeah. And how did you, how did you determine that? Can you just tell our audience? Sure. So we we looked both um, at some behavioral responses to. In all instances, when we're when we're performing a, a behavioral task in mice, we tend to use in order to keep the mouse motivated to to perform the test, we have to use an aversive environment. So. For example, we do a particular test called the Barnes maze, and this is a learning and memory task. And, and what we're doing essentially is asking a mouse to remember, remember where an escape hole is on a large disk. And that large disk is in the open, and we have a bright light over top of it, and these are all things that we know mice don't like. They like to run around the edges of things. They like to be in the dark. So the performance on that task is going to be related to how they're responding to this stressful environment. I mean, in addition, we can look very simply at just the release of stress hormones after an acute stressor and watch how that rise and then fall of stress hormones occurs. And in both cases, we saw that the second generation animals were, males were more stress responsive than, than controls. So more avoidant, more risk averse. Are those? I think that risk averse. Is that accurate? Certainly. So we do a co-concert of behavioral tests, because mm -hmm. obviously what you would like to be able to do is ask them, <laughs> how are you feeling today? <laughs> are you blue? How nervous are you? Out? I know people who wouldn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> but this is how, as we are talking about earlier, the DSM-4, soon to be the DSM-5 criteria, this is how all neuropsychiatric disorders, right? They don't do an imaging study. They don't do a blood test. What they do is they interview, mm -hmm. right, over many different means. How do they respond in this environment? How do they respond in that environment? How are you feeling, et cetera? Mm -hmm. That's, we can't do that with animals. Unfortunately, so what we have to do is we have to place them in situations where we have a control normal animals. In this case, it would be the non-stressed um, animal of the same sex. We would compare their behaviors, and we know if you're hung by your tail, what's called the tail suspension test. It's a very brief exposure. <laughs> Most animals will try to escape, and they will struggle. These animals will struggle less, so they give up more easily. So that's mm. sort of likened, and these things have been validated with the different mm. pharmacological drugs. We have other tests, so plus made. We have closed arms and open arms. And these have been validated for anxiety. So if you're more anxious, you run back and forth in the closed arms because rodents want to escape and they are curious. But the less less anxious animals will actually venture out and check out the open arms. And so there's many different tests we look at as an overview, both their physiological response to stress and their behavioral, and sort of get an idea of a more stress-sensitive animal or more an animal that's not coping well under stress which across all neuropsychiatric diseases in humans is a similar component. Stress, stress almost always exacerbates symptoms, produces the onset of, of the disease, or somehow disrupts in terms of the treatment paradigm itself. But it's, it's across, bar none across all diseases. Mm -hmm. It's this common thing where people don't cope well with stress. So you're broadly saying that uh, perinatal stress may be an epigenetic factor, which means that if somebody is genetically vulnerable, this may sort of play a role, well, not necessarily at birth, but 
we're down certainly the road. we're certainly starting to think a little differently now. You know, for a long time it was, you know, I remember when I was training, the new thing was genes and behavior. Holy cow, genes drive our behavior. How interesting is that? And then it became okay for neuropsychiatric diseases, we're trying to understand the basis of those diseases. So can we look for SNPs? And so some things we found and a lot of times we found nothing. But there may be both a genetic predisposition and then an environmental factor. And this is a big thing for as Tom Insel discusses for NIMH, which is the gene by environment by developmental right. stage. Mm -hmm. And I think that this has become so much more informative for our thinking about things such as autism and schizophrenia, which are likely not to be a single gene that contributes. It may be, again, right, your, your genetic vulnerability, and now you either have an in utero stress experience, and that at that developmental stage becomes detrimental towards you, or you may, that may be, the epigenetics may be your genetic predisposition, and then you receive some sort of exaggerated stressor later in life, and that produces an onset, such as depression. Many women who produce depression are, um, have some sort of major stressor in their life. In fact, mm -hmm. it's very frequent that they would have a stress uh -huh. predisposing of their, their onset for depression. And last question. As a psychiatrist, one of the things we've always been struck by are girls who've had sexual abuse, trauma, they are never the same. And and we it, it's a frightening and two years ago it has, you know they've sort of presented it's the number wow. one factor then it's the strongest predictor we have of um, early life adversity and by early life in humans anyway that's usually in range of I think somewhere three or five years of age up until but it's usually pre adolescent so I actually just wrote another grant on this because this is actually the strongest predictor we have what is it about that developmental window prior to adolescent onset that determines the strongest predictor for later life affective disorders. And it's, in women, the strongest one. But wouldn't you guess that perinatally they were exposed, since we know so many, so often trauma runs in generations as well? So this is the difficulty with humans. This is, this is why we uh, work on mice. This is uh -huh. the difficulty with humans, is that we can't control the environment. And we do both the prenatal stress that we're discussing today, but we also have models of maternal high-fat diet. And when you begin to see how strongly the environment can alter future generations. And you think how that may compound, you know, how, how does if mom was obese and then had the baby and then the next generation mom was stressed and, you know, so how does that become? And maybe that's why we find some of these diseases so difficult to pinpoint what the, the factors are. Mm -hmm. Very interesting work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.